0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ, but Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. As I mentioned, we come to the end of our climatic chapter in Hebrews where we're dealing with the climax of Christ and his significance, the application of Christ, and and why he's so significant. The author of Hebrews has made the case he's this great Melchizedekian priest-king. He has no beginning, no end. He's the one who offers himself on our behalf. And and we hear now in Hebrews 9 about where he presides in this heavenly tabernacle. And so, as we conclude, we're, we're sort of left with... Where's the tabernacle? Where's our priest? Why is it such a good thing that he's in this heavenly tabernacle? I mean, uh, we, we can understand, or, or at least if we know Israel's uh, worship and, and what they've grown up with, we, we can understand and have some sympathy with we like the tabernacle, we like the priests, we like the sacrifices. It, it was something tangible, something we could see. Why is this better? Why is it better to have Christ in a heavenly tabernacle, than to have the types and the models. And so as we consider this, we're going to begin by looking at verse 23, which I think is a pretty important verse. And if we misunderstand verse 23, we're going to misunderstand uh, the whole chapter and basically the significance of Hebrews. So 9 verse 23, obviously, uh, with the thus is pretty important. So what ultimately needs cleansing? Secondly, we're going to see why is Christ superior? Why does that matter? And lastly, why is Christ coming again? And so let's begin with this cleansing and what ultimately needs cleansing. If you notice in verse 23, there's a movement from the lesser to the greater. So he's saying, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. So when we hear this, we might say, well, what's what's the big deal of this? I mean, we can understand Christ shed blood, shed blood in heaven, as we heard from 9 verse 11, uh, the picture there of uh, Christ being offered on the heavenly altar to take away sin. So you might say, well, what's 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 the big deal in verse 23? I think a commentator has sort of set the, the stage of Hebrews 9 with these three different ways that people have interpreted 9 verse 23. Uh, So some interpret 9 verse 23, seeing this as an inauguration or the beginning of the heavenly tabernacle. The second way of understanding this is that the blood of Christ actually cleanses the heavenly tabernacle. And the last way is taking it that it's actually the shedding of Christ's blood cleanses the people so they can draw near. And so when we look at these different views, we might say, well, what's happening in this verse? Why is this this so important? Well, this verse, as it's laying out this order, we we can see the force of having this inauguration of the heavenly tabernacle that is the beginning. Uh, The the problem with that view is that Christ's work, even as we go to Hebrews 11 and even in the context here, uh, Christ's work, 9 verse 26, since the foundation of the world, Christ's work is retroactive. It it goes back uh, to the Old Testament saints. So Adam, at the exit of Eden, who receives the first gospel promise, is the one who is made righteous or cleansed in the blood of Christ. So this heavenly tabernacle is is in effect. Christ being offered, 9 verse 11, in the heavenly tabernacle implies that the heavenly tabernacle is in effect, that, that it's there It's present. So this isn't the inauguration of the heavenly reality. We can think of Isaiah 6 with the altar being present before him that Isaiah sees as he's called into the highest heavens, right? I mean, that's the vision that's going on there. So we we don't want to say this is the inauguration or beginning of the heavenly tabernacle. So that that's not a view we we want to take. So we take the second view and we look at these heavenly vessels that need to be purified. So people take 9 verse 23 and say, see, the earthly uh, items are those that need to be purified. Therefore, the heavenly items need a greater purification, right? And so the blood of Christ is a greater purification. The problem with this view is that we're assuming that what's in heaven is not created perfect. Uh, This this is a big problem. Because this world needs redemption, not because it was created out of material or that God called something tangible into being. What does God say at the end of the creation? And it was good. So God pronounces a benediction, pronouncing the holiness of the creation. So material vessels, uh, land The garden of eden these are not sinful just because they're tangible and and so we we don't want to say that when god makes a heavenly tabernacle that that somehow it needs cleansing it needs sanctifying no god is is perfectly capable of creating perfect things that are holy unstained and without blemish and so we don't want to take the second view either we might say, well then, why is this such a big deal? Well, the big deal is that we, we can kind of minimize who we are as humans. We can minimize the fall. And probably the greatest tragedy would be minimizing the holiness of God. And acting as if God himself is incapable of creating something that is holy and perfect at his creative will, at his decree, at his engineering, at his architecture as uh, this is a tabernacle that is not made by human hands and so we we want to understand and be careful here about the holiness of God and so when when God makes this cleansing we may say okay well then why is verse 23 so important Well verse 23 is telling us <clears throat> that the very promise that God has made has come to pass that the promise of shedding a blood, has come to pass. It's not that this heavenly sanctuary is just begun or inaugurated at this point. The altar in heaven has flaming coals, as we see in Isaiah 6, but the sacrifice is not definitively offered on that. And so the sacrifice needs to be offered. It can't just be prophets sent from heaven to speak the word of God. The word of God has to have action. If the Lord just simply commands, let there be light and let there be darkness, and nothing happens, it means the word of God falls flat. It has no power. It has no teeth. It is is a useless, uh, mere whisper, a a vapor of nothingness. What Hebrews 9, verse 23 (laughs) is telling us is that there is a tabernacle. And this tabernacle has had an offering That makes it so this world that has fallen, this world that is stained by sin, this creation that is cursed by God, our very beings that deserve death in hell have been taken away. So that this heavenly sanctuary is in such a place that even in this fallen state where we are not in perfection, That when we draw near into the presence of God with our imperfect prayers, our imperfect requests, our imperfect desires, that Christ has to sanctify, that these things have been taken away. Everything that is necessary has been done. And so the the bloodshed of the Old Testament that was first done for the priests and then for the vessels to sanctify them, The author of Hebrews is saying, we draw near into the presence of a heavenly, holy tabernacle that is purified by a definitive offering. And so it's realistically turning to the original audience and saying, do you really want to go back to those models? Do you want to go back to the provisional uh, religious uh, offerings that we see that, that ultimately don't take away sin? He's saying, have a bigger perspective. Look beyond this world. Look beyond your circumstances and see where your prayers reach into the most holy, heavenly sanctuary that has been cleansed and we cannot defile even with imperfect prayers, even with imperfect requests, even as struggling people. The author of Hebrews is saying, draw near to this sanctuary in confidence because the blood of Christ is sure." And so that's setting the stage. He wants us to understand this heavenly sanctuary is truly sanctified. It's sanctified in the sense that we cannot defile it as fallen human beings. It's not that God created it imperfect. It's not that uh, the blood needed to purify or inaugurate the heavenly sanctuary. Clearly, as we see from Isaiah 6, this sanctuary is, is holy, it is pure, and it has the altar. But we need the sacrifice so imperfect people can draw near and enter into the presence of this holy place and not desecrate it and not rob it of its holiness. And so the assurance is that this place is so holy, so pure, that we cannot do that. Going on then, when we look at verses 24 and 26, we may say, well then, why is Christ's sacrifice so superior? I mean, after all, we... We think that more is better, right? So we would think that having more blood, more animals, more priests, that if there's one that's not really so effective, at least another one, sort of a fallback program, right? I mean, uh, everyone says that if a file only exists in one place, it doesn't exist. It needs to exist in at least three places. Uh, to really exist. In other words, there needs to be redundancy. There needs to be a backup plan, a a recovery strategy. And so to to put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, is pretty risky. As human beings, this is what we try not to do. We, We try to make sure that there's more than one plan. But Hebrews is telling us that actually it's good to have only one plan in terms of our redemption. We may say, well, why is that? Well, he wants us to understand what Christ has done. So he's emphasizing, again, Christ's entrance into the heavenly tabernacle. So before, 9 verse 11, is by his blood he enters into this heavenly tabernacle. So it's a movement into this place and the shedding of his blood. Now he's saying, let's let's think about Christ being in this heavenly tabernacle. He is here. It is ordained by God. This is the intention. This is what God has intended for fallen man to draw near. So as Christ enters into this place, he's saying it's not the copies. So the copies are merely the manufacturing or or the prototypes, as we've said, of the greater reality. Uh, So this is understanding that uh, basically, like Peter speaks of baptism being sort of a copy or a model of the flood, that it's one little picture of the greater reality. And so the the picture here is that the tabernacle has served its purpose. The tabernacle was there, it it served its purpose, it's a model, it's modeling redemption. But now he's saying we're drawing near beyond the model, looking to the actual production, the the actual reality. So this is sort of redundant as the author of Hebrews keeps prosecuting this case. But now he's moving from how we get there to the reality of this is where Christ is presides. This is where he's, he is seated in his glory. And so this call is for us to move beyond these models and these copies, but to look to the true things. And so this is something that's not imaginary. Uh, the, the true thing is, as he's mentioned before, 8 verse 2, true tent. 10 verse 22, he calls us to draw near with a true heart, a focused heart, uh, that's in tune with the purpose of God. And so it's, it's again, it's not just putting off sin, but it's, it's having an orientation to God, everything about us. It's not just putting to death sin, but it's also wanting to conform to Christ as his redeemed, consciously understanding that we are called in the presence of God. And so where does he go? Now this is something that, that we can miss in, when we read this in the English. Because it says, but into heaven. So say, okay, yeah, we we know he's in heaven. But you have to understand, he doesn't say the heavens. He literally says the heaven. In other words, there is this this one place where he presides in full glory. Uh, We can think about this being the heavens that's beyond this age. We think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 speaking of being called into the third heaven. We think of Isaiah, we think of the psalmist praising the highest heavens. The point of this is that this is the place where God presides in his full glory. So when Paul says he's called into the third heaven, what Paul means is he was there seeing God in his glory, seated on his throne with the angels of heaven flying around doing the bidding of God. It's the imagery of Isaiah 6, with Isaiah there being in the presence of God, seeing the angels serving and doing the will of God and commissioning him to bring the word of the Lord to the people. This is a place where Isaiah is there, falls on his knees and says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from an unclean people. In other words, the holiness of the place is so overwhelming that a mere mortal falls down before the living God and recognizes that this mere mortal is is not worthy to be there he he, he crumbles that's the imagery here this is a place where Christ presides so the author of Hebrews wants us to understand this isn't the model this isn't a place where a priest goes in if he's not prepared he dies This is heaven itself. And as he's in heaven itself, what does he tell us about this? That he's in heaven himself in the presence of God. Now, this presence, we can look in Matthew's gospel, it refers again and again to being face to face with one. Uh, We can think of Leviticus 16, verse 2, uh, where it's used there in the Greek translation, the Hebrew of the priests drawing near into the presence of God but at a particular time right the priest can't just barge into the most holy place on the day of atonement he has to be properly prepared and then he can come into the presence of God and he does this once a year so it's once a year series of preparations the significance here of Christ being in the presence of God means that as he's enthroned in glory He is face to face with the living God. Jacob himself, after wrestling with God in the origin story of Israel, what does Jacob say? I have seen God face to face and I have lived. So he calls it paniel, looking on the face of God, basically. Here we have Christ in the full glory of heaven in the presence of God. And so the intention is for us to understand the Melchizedekian priesthood who has come, who has offered himself, taken on the flesh, that our flesh is in the highest heavens in the presence of the living God as a great Melchizedekian priest. This is to overwhelm us and to say, whoa, we're not going to a tabernacle where a priest enters once a year and might die if he forgets one of the religious rituals he is called legitimately by God to do. This is Christ who is so holy, who has offered himself once for all, who presides in the presence of God. Now he goes on to drive home the significance of this blood because it's not the blood of another. It's not the blood of an animal. It's his own blood. So when we think back to coming into the presence of God in the day of atonement, offering an animal on behalf of the priest himself, and then offering an animal in the presence of God, Christ doesn't offer an animal. Christ goes to the cross on his own merits. And he has cut off, Hebrews 9 verse 11, in the heavenly tabernacle by the hand of the Father, sacrifice on that altar and is raised to life. So the author of Hebrews is saying he suffered once, and we can say, oh, but we want redundancy. We want the backup plan. The author of Hebrews is saying, how did that backup plan work? How did that redundancy work? Some of these priests died. The temple itself, that we think is the most stable presentation of what the tabernacle is, is conquered, cut off, rebuilt. There's nothing lasting with that. Here we have a priest who presides in the presence of God. This priest, as we find throughout Hebrews, offering himself as a significant presentation of his priestly work. Hebrews 5, verse 7, he offers up his prayers and supplications. This is Christ praying for us in the presence of God. Hebrews 8, 3, and 4, contrasting Christ's offering to the animal offerings. Chapter 9, we have verse 7, 9, 14, 25, 28, calling to our attention the perfect sacrifice of Christ. We have to understand our temptation as humans as to think redundancy and a backup plan as a way of salvation in life. Hebrews is saying you don't want that. You want the one-time work of Christ. And so the point then is that this one-time sacrifice of Christ being in the presence of God. Think of Hebrews 4, drawn near to the throne of grace in a time of need. Where are we drawing near? We're drawing near to God in the true heavens where Isaiah, a mere mortal, falls to his knees and says, woe is me. He doesn't think he can be in the presence of God. Christ is, dwells here forever the priests who merely serve in the mere models that do not uh, experience the fullness of the glory of god are those who are still struck dead if they're not prepared the call here is to see we have a superior priest who presides and dwells in the presence of god now as we go on and we find this conclusion then as he's driving home this point in verses 27 and 28, he calls us to understand Christ is coming again. And so he has to address this issue because when Christ leaves this earth, he promises he's going to return. So he might say, well, if Christ is going to return, does that mean somehow his work is not effective and, and he's going to repeat it and he's going to die on the cross? He was saying that's not why Christ is coming again. He's saying, listen. As a man dies and then there's judgment, it's done. So he's calling to our attention the the reality of of life. Yes, we die, we face judgment. But he wants us to also know the definitiveness of this. Can you imagine if this statement was not true and how terrible it would be? I mean, it's basically like the movie Groundhog Day where he relives the same day again and again and again. This would be like us dying, going through judgment, knowing the reality of what that judgment is, and then coming back to life, living life, knowing what God's going to say to us, and there's nothing we can do about it. We face a judgment again, and then we, we, we go, and we're reborn, and then we live, and then we face a judgment again. I mean, that sounds terrible. Who wants to live that way and have that cyclical view of history? He's calling to our attention. What, what do we expect? In other words, There's something instinctive we have as human beings, that we're going to die, we're going to come before God, and then it's going to be done. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you you know this from from your perspective. Instinctively, as a human being, you know this is real. You know this is true. Well, but before we start going down this road and, and thinking too much about the judgment of humanity, he says, well, then what about Christ? If this is a reality for man from the fall, then we're going to stand before the living God. And then it's done. He's saying, are, are we really going to say that Christ is one who's going to enter history, live a perfect life again, die in the cross, be raised, and then go enter into history again, die, live a perfect life, die on the cross, and then be raised. He was saying, that's absurd. We, we, we don't believe that. We don't believe that for ourselves. And do we really want to believe that for Christ? I mean, if, if it's not true that Christ dies and bears the wrath of God and then is raised, it means basically we have this endless, horrible groundhog day of continually reliving our life, not being able to change anything, facing judgment, facing judgment, facing judgment, and there is no end. The author of Hebrews is saying if you go back to the models, that's your fate. That's your destiny. That's your orientation. You don't want that. None of us want that. That's terrible. That's a horrible way to live. And the author of Hebrews is saying, because we know what the scriptures teach us. Christ is the one who has lived and he's died once. Because of that one-time death, he bore the sins of many. And so we got to understand he's bearing our sins. Our sins are given to him. So this is making a reference back to Isaiah 53. I mean, it's one of the things I admire about Hebrews is is that he just really does a good job of taking these Old Testament allusions and just calling them to your attention. And so you can read this quickly and kind of get it. When you start thinking of Isaiah 53, which is why I wanted to read it for our Declaration of Assurance or to Put our minds there. The understanding of the perfect servant who bears our sins. That's what Hebrews is saying. How can you bear to know that you will fall into the hands of a just judge? Because Christ has gone before us. He has taken our sins away. This is why Christ has come and entered history. And he dwells in the presence of God. So when you think about this, now you start putting this together. Wait a minute. The priest couldn't stay in the most holy place. The, the, the priest had an expiration. He had to get out of there. Stayed there too long, and he compromised the holiness. He was dead. But Christ lives in the presence of God. So when we draw near to the throne of grace, we're not really drawing near to a priest outside the temple in his office, if you will. We are drawing near to Christ in the highest heaven, seated in glory, in the presence of God. That's the presentation here. The God-man, the Melchizedekian priest, without beginning, without end, has made this happen. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, we know he's coming again, but why is he coming again? He's saying not to deal with sin. In other words, he doesn't need to sacrifice himself. That's not why Christ is coming again. It's not to sacrifice himself. That's done. That was the first mission That was his first entrance into history publicly. His second public entrance into history is to save those. In other words, to bring us to that heavenly tabernacle so we can dwell in the presence of God as glorified people. Not like John worshiping the angel and the angel saying, whoa, we don't do this here. I'm a mere creature. You do not worship me. But that does tell us a little bit about the holiness of heaven, doesn't it? That even the angels in their glory were tempted to worship as God himself, even as John himself is rebuked, but recognizing the holiness of where we are going. And so the author of Hebrews is saying Christ has not abandoned us. It's greater than the first exodus. The first exodus didn't end in definitive rest, as Hebrews has said in chapter 4. Joshua did not give them rest. But when Christ comes again, we have this rest and this assurance that we will dwell in the presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle forever because of what Christ has done. And so Hebrews is saying to us, do you want to go back to the models? Do you want those things? Do you want to test God? Do you want to really be like Israel in the wilderness? Hebrews is saying that that didn't end well. You don't want that. You want to be the ones who eagerly wait for him. And what does that mean? Well, this is where I think Hebrews 4, where he begins to introduce this concept of Christ being our priest, when he talks about Christ being seated on the throne of grace, sympathizing with our weaknesses, inviting us to draw near. Here the author of Hebrews is saying that's the significance of drawing near to Christ, that you are drawing near to the one who does not merely make himself worthy to enter into the presence of God, but the one who is worthy on his own merits and his own sacrifice. He is one who has done it without any preparation. He has done it perfectly. And he dwells in the presence of God. the most holy place is the God-man, the Melchizedekian priest. And he invites us now to draw near to him. His blood is so powerful That even the imperfection of who we are and what we confess before His throne of grace cannot taint the holiness of heaven. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Draw near, turn to your Savior, call out to Him. He is your gracious King who leads you, shepherds you, and guides you to the place He has secured for you, where you dwell in the full presence and glory of God. That even as we sojourn here under the sun, we taste these blessings and the power of the Spirit. And as we call out to God, we can be assured these prayers are heard by the great Melchizedekian priest in the everlasting, eternal, heavenly tabernacle built by God. And so when we ask that question then, is there really something more in this age? Is there really... Something greater that we have in Christ than what the Old Testament saints have. The reality is, yes. Because we have the priest who's not merely offered another animal, but a priest who was offered himself. A priest who is so pure and holy and righteous that he doesn't need any preparation. He can actually take our sins upon him, as Isaiah 53 says. And he can bear those sins because he is so holy and so perfect as a God-man that when he dies on the cross, these sins are taken away. The tabernacle is sanctified in such a way because of Christ that we cannot profane it. That is how holy and pure it is. And our priest is so holy and pure that he does not need to continually repeat his work. He doesn't need to come back to earth and do this again. He doesn't need to purify the the tabernacle and refresh it. His one-time work is complete. And he is so holy that the life that he has lived has established his worthiness to dwell in the presence of God. And it's only because of his worthiness we can draw near in our time of help using the language of Hebrews. Hebrews. And we can draw near to the presence of our great Melchizedekian priest. And we can be assured that our prayers do not fall on deaf ears. But they are brought forth in the heavenly sanctuary. The place that we cannot profane that is perfected. The place where we go. Where we are destined to dwell. As we eagerly wait for our Savior. Let us then be a people who are conscious of our heavenly calling, the people who know that Christ has redeemed, a people who are conscious that our heavenly calling is in the heavenly tabernacle. In our times of doubt, and our times of struggle, let us turn to our Lord drawing near, believing that as we call upon Him in our time of need, He hears us, being a sympathetic priest who continues to prod us, lead us, bring us to his rest. And the priesthood as Israel was in the land of Egypt for 400 years, thinking their prayers were falling on deaf ears. And then that great exodus event. How we long for the greater and more ultimate exodus event of when Christ comes again and brings us into this heavenly tabernacle where we are face to face in the presence of God. That is our destiny. That is what we taste today in the power of the Spirit. That is what we take hold of by faith. Let us not then minimize the significance of our great Melchizedekian priest. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.